Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm here with Tony Simon. Hi, Tony. Hello. It's good to be here. We worked together for 10 years. I joined the Simon Law Firm in 2004. You were already here. Tell me about your life before 2004. So I was the first one of my nine brothers and sisters and I to go away to college. I was number eight in our family. So I went away to the University of Notre Dame and got an electrical engineering degree because I was very interested in computers and technology. My dad didn't want me to go. He thought I should stay home in St. Louis. One of the biggest reasons I went was because I didn't like working at the market every Saturday down at Sulard Market. And it was a way for me to not have to do that. That was really the catalyst for me wanting to go away. So he finally relented and let me go away to school. So when I came back to St. Louis, my senior year in college, I was trying to determine what I wanted to do. And I had some offers from some local companies. I think it was McDonnell Douglas at the time or something. And my brother, John, talked to me and suggested that I should consider law school. And he said, look, just go for one year. Go to law school for one year. And if you don't like it, you can still go back and be an engineer. And if you get a law degree, you can still be an engineer. I just think it would be something that would be really good for you. And so he was the one that suggested I go to law school. So I went to law school and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the classwork. It was quite a bit different from engineering you know, where there's always a right answer, a correct answer. And so I went to law school, did pretty well, and I graduated and started working at Thompson Coburn. It was Thompson Mitchell at the time. This was back at the time when they didn't have patent departments in big firms. And everybody I ran into because I had an engineering degree said, how come you're not a patent attorney? And I had given it some thought, but I was working doing commercial litigation and admiralty litigation of all things. So there's two specialties recognized in law, admiralty and patent law. I was doing admiralty law at the time, defending barge line companies here in St. Louis. They operate on the Mississippi. So I did that for five years. I then went to, I wanted to become a patent attorney. So I went to a small boutique patent firm in Clayton, spent seven years there became a patent attorney and was doing IP litigation, patent litigation, trademark litigation. And my patent firm had grown to 19 lawyers and we merged back into Thompson Coburn, my old law firm. So they came and I was back at the same firm that I was at before, but now we became part of their patent department, patent trademark department. In 2003, my brother John called me and wanted me to come over and start a department here at the Simon Law Firm doing contingency fee, intellectual property, and commercial litigation, business litigation. And so I did. So I came over in 2003, started that practice. I was one of the few attorneys at that time. There was probably one or two law firms that did contingency fee, patent and trademark litigation. And I've been here ever since. So I guess it's 18 years. You have quite a few things that fall under your umbrella that I might call business law. You do intellectual property. You do key Tom actions. And I think you said malpractice. Yeah, legal malpractice. And I trust. Yes. Tell me about your financial model. Do you try to do these under contingent fees? The only thing I really won't do is hourly work. When I came over here, part of the reason I wanted to come over was I did have clients who couldn't afford to hire me who had substantive good cases, but 
from a standpoint of budget and for their business, it just wasn't worthwhile moving forward. So one of the things I decided when I came over here, I took John's model, which was personal injury and product liability cases on a contingent fee, and I applied it to commercial litigation and IP litigation, IP intellectual property litigation. And one of the things I always try to insist on is that my interests and my client's interests are fully aligned. And that's worked out well for me. My goal is to maximize my client's recovery as quickly as possible and for both of us to benefit from that. So I won't do hourly. I do mostly contingency fee, which means if you don't win, I don't collect. I do sometimes hybrid approaches where it'll be a flat fee and a bonus if we have success. And I've done that when I've actually represented some defendants. You know, I'm not always the plaintiff. And then I have other situations where we work out an arrangement where the client can budget so they can pay me a set amount of money over a given time period at regular intervals because businesses have to deal with cash flow. And so they can pay me monthly, quarterly, every six months when the case is done, but they'll pay me a certain amount and they know exactly what it's going to cost them. And that's a benefit to businesses. I have clients that come to me because they like that. They know exactly what they're going to spend, not only from the standpoint of budgeting, but also from the standpoint of, is it worth pursuing this litigation? Sometimes hourly firms will say, well, we'll budget half a million dollars, but we could go over that. I tell them, look, here's what I'll handle the case for X amount of dollars. That's exactly what it'll cost you. And then they can decide, okay, do I want to invest that money in this case? And is it beneficial to my business? How common is that among attorneys who handle intellectual property for plaintiffs? For plaintiffs, they're becoming more common. There was a time where they weren't common at all. They're becoming more and more, but it depends on the firm. Most larger firms that have a steady stream of hourly clients do not want that type of risk because I'm taking a risk when I take a case. If I take five cases and I win two or three and I lose one or two, I've invested a lot of time and out-of-pocket expense on those cases. So the big firms, multinational or you know all over the country have offices, tend to not like those contingency fee cases. And I work with them from time to time on those kind of cases. They like to bring me in and we work together because of my expertise in that area. There seems to be, from my perspective, a division between the intellectual property attorneys who actually get into the courtroom and those who don't. How does that break down? In intellectual property, so you have patent, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets are all under the umbrella of intellectual property. There's just like the breakdown between litigators and corporate lawyers. You know, corporate lawyers will form companies, draft contracts, draft license agreements, those kind of things. Intellectual property lawyers will draft patent applications, draft trademark applications, assist their clients in registering their copyrights and trademarks. And typically those attorneys do not do litigation. They don't go in the courtroom. In order to prepare patent applications for clients, you have to be a patent attorney or a patent agent. That's a separate bar exam. To litigate patents in federal court, you do not have to be a patent attorney. Now I'm both. I'm a patent attorney, I'm a registered patent attorney, but I don't draft patent applications anymore. There was a time that I did. Now I focus exclusively on the litigation. So there really is a separation between we call patent prosecutors, people that file patent applications and patent litigators. 
on your bio at the Simon Law Firm, it mentions that you have sued some of the largest companies in the world, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft. Do you tend to lean towards certain kinds of intellectual property disputes that would involve these sorts of companies? I think what I tend to do is most of my cases are the David and Goliath scenario. They are the little guy, the little gal who has an invention or a small company and has a trademark and the big company comes along and just wants to take the intellectual property away. And I represent the little guy most of the time. And so the reason I go up against those companies are, in my experience, those are the companies that think they can do whatever they want because they know they've got lots of money and lots of lawyers and it's going to be difficult for their opponent to hire somebody who's going to be willing to take their case or they can't afford an attorney. So that's probably the biggest reason that those are the types of companies. What advice would you consider most important to offer to a young attorney today? Get as much experience in what you want to do as quickly as possible in your career. Don't let your fears or other people hold you back. There's this mentality out there that if you're not practicing 10 years, you shouldn't be the one trying the case. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Just like anything else in life, the way you get better and become an expert in doing what you do and becoming comfortable in doing what you do is to do it. And lawyers that think they can't take depositions or they can't get in a courtroom and argue motions or they can't try a case are only hurting themselves. And sometimes because of financial reasons, you get put into that situation. You need to pay off your student loans. So you get a job at a big firm where you're the 10th person in line. But even in that situation, you know, I was in that situation. I had student loans and I had to work at a big firm. And I was at a firm that was like that. There was five lawyers above me on a case. And so I got very little responsibility. But I pushed and I insisted and I found partners. So what I would tell young lawyers are, if you want to be a litigator, Go litigate, go try cases, get a firm that's going to let you do that. If you're at a firm that you might not be able to do it, find an attorney who you can work for, a mentor that's going to let you do that and get that experience. What is the thing you most like about being an attorney? I think there's a few things. One is, as I said before, the autonomy. I know that I can tomorrow, if I wanted to, go start my own law firm. I don't have to rely on someone else. Now here practicing with my brother, I wouldn't leave. But in the event something came along, if something happened, I could always start my own law firm and do my own thing wherever I wanted to do it. The other thing too is I think it just gives you a different perspective on how to think as an attorney. And that's why I liked law school. Coming from engineering, you know, the answer was 4.637, you know, four significant digits. And if you didn't have that exactly right, you were wrong. And that's not life, you know, for the most part. When I went to law school, there was no exact answer. There was, well, you can argue this and you can argue that and there's all these issues. And you think, well, here, here's the right reason we should do this. And then somebody tells you some things you hadn't thought about and it starts to change your mind and makes you think about things a different way. And I like thinking about that as an attorney and I like working with other lawyers you know, in the practice of law, I guess this would be the third thing I like about it. It's a challenge because for the most part, you have an adversary. In litigation, you have somebody on the other side who's trying to win and make you lose. And that makes you stay on your toes and it makes things interesting and it makes you want to beat them. 
as opposed to just coming in and cranking out something over and over and over again. That's why I don't draft patent applications anymore. It was like sit down, spend 80 hours drafting a patent application with nobody there to fight. Now, one of the downsides of that, of course, is you lose sometimes and you start to second guess yourself. And the other thing is you never stop thinking about your cases. Sometimes I envy people that go to work and when they're done at work, they come home and they don't have to think about work. I lay in bed at night thinking about my cases. I wake up in the morning thinking about them. Everything I do, I'm thinking about my clients and my cases. It seems like there's also this problem with diminishing returns where you rethink your case. You're stirring the pot all the time and less and less is falling out. Less and less good stuff is occurring to you as you think about your case. But once in a while it does. It's really bothersome to me to know that there might be another thing out there. Yeah. And some of those things, though, Eric, happen because of that adversarial relationship, right? I mean, some of those things, especially at trial, John always told me trying a case is like going down the river in a canoe standing up. And that's the thing that, that surprises me the most. Really good trial lawyers adapt and pivot and change because things happen at trial. A witness might say something that you didn't expect. The lawyer might take a strategy that you now see an opening that you can exploit. And that's what I mean about that adversary relationship and why I love it. But that's something where you have to be able to adapt and you have to always be thinking about your cases. I tell my children all the time during the pandemic and I started working from home and and they'd say, oh, you're not going to work today. And I say, I'm working all the time. A hundred percent of the time it's, I'm working in my mind all the time on my cases. Let's talk about antitrust. I know you had a big case back in, I'm guessing 2008, up in Boston. Yes, yes. So let me just talk generally about antitrust. So in the United States, based on our constitution, we're a free market system. And typically we want companies to drive the market, supply and demand, right? Well, there are times where companies get so powerful that they can do things that are unfair and actually hurt not only consumers, but hurt competition. And when you take away the competition, you now don't have a free market, right? Today, think about Facebook, think about Amazon, think about the control they have of the market, Google on search engines. They exercise enormous amounts of control. So in an antitrust case, the reason an expert is so important is because you're talking about how particular conduct impacts the free market system and the economy. And so you need an economist who can be able to do that. And then you have, typically you have another expert who's gonna focus on the particular harm to your client. But you need somebody that can come in and walk through the entire story. But in that particular case, it was another David and Goliath story. And I represented a small company that repaired big storage units. So at the time, this was back in the day where, where the IRS and banks stored all their data on, they looked like VCR tapes, but they were on tape. And there was a robotic system that was made by a big company called Storage Tech that would change out those tapes as people needed to call up things. You know, it's not like the hard drives of today and the servers where we can just instantly receive something. You needed to take out a tape and put in the right tape and find the right tape. Well, that company had a system where they would have a warranty on those multi-million dollar machines. And when the warranty wore out, they tried to push you to buy a new one and spend another five or $10 million. 
Well, my clients started repairing them and maintaining them in competition with the manufacturer. They would charge a million dollars for a warranty or for maintaining it, and he would charge 150000 He was charging 10 times less than they were. The bigger thing was the way the defendant got the companies to buy a new big $10 million system was they said, well, look, we're going to have to charge you $2 million a year to maintain this. So in two, three years, you're going to pay for a new system, and the new one will be under warranty for five years, so you won't have that cost. And so he was able to maintain them and repair them and keep these things going. And he started to cut into their business. So they sue him in Boston. He's a St. Louis company. And they sue him out in Boston for copyright infringement and a violation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And their theory was that by accessing the error codes in the machine and using them to fix the machine that the customer owned, he was violating their copyrights because they had a copyright on the error data that came out of the machine. And it's not a publication in the colloquial sense where he's publishing it to the world. No. He's using it to fix the machine. Correct. And there was a limited number of error codes. And he knew what they were. He had them memorized. Okay. The bigger thing they did, though, was then they started going to their customers and saying, if you hire Tony's client, we're not going to upgrade your software. And so when bugs and things come along, you're just going to be stuck. And so we filed a counterclaim for antitrust because it's a particular thing in antitrust where there's tying, right? So if I own something that I have a monopoly on, and sometimes that can be because it's patented or copyrighted, like their software, that's fine. That's a legal monopoly. But if I then say to you, well, Eric, if you want to use my software, you have to buy all your toilet paper from me or all your food from me also. So you're now tying another area of the market to your monopoly, your rightful monopoly. And that's what they were doing. So customers were letting him go and saying, look, we're banks. We're the government. We're the Department of Defense. We can't not have our system working. And if we hire you, we won't get the software updates. And so we filed a counterclaim on that. We lost on a judgment, a summary judgment by the judge, took it up on appeal, got it reversed, went back down, and had a month-long trial in Boston against that big company. And right before closing arguments, they ended up settling and giving our client everything he wanted. But it was terrible conduct, terrible conduct. And the trial was a long trial, wasn't it? Oh, it it was a month-long trial. And so from the 10,000-foot view, you could easily see that if competition were open, he would give his price for what he does, and they would say, we can do it at that price, and the customer would choose. This was obviously not that. No. How did it go this far? What made it a complicated trial? Well... Mostly the defendant. That's what defendants do. They want to make it a month-long trial so the juror can forget things and to mix things up. Quite honestly, I think we could have tried that case in two weeks. Our job was to keep the jury focused. I remember this particular judge allowed jurors to ask questions. And one of the other things they did, I forgot to tell you this, one of the other things that Storage Tech did was they would go in when he would take over an account, when my client would take over an account, and they surreptitiously modified the software to suppress the error codes. So the machine no longer would spit out the error codes and they didn't tell the customer. And this juror sitting in front, she raised her hand and she said to the engineer after I cross-examined him for the defendant, she said, so I just want to understand this. You don't own the machine, right? The customer does, yes. And you went in and modified the machine so it wouldn't spit out the error codes and didn't tell the customer, yes. And you did that so they would have to hire you to fix their own machine. They couldn't pick who they wanted to fix it. 
And, you know, at that point, I'm like, okay, somebody's paying attention here. They get the story. I get calls all the time, and most people are complaining about Amazon. You can sell your services or goods on Amazon. And I have heard this story no less than 10 times a year. I get a call, and they say, look, I'm selling my product on Amazon, and I'm doing great, gangbusters. And after about six months, a year, Amazon starts competing with me, selling my product for less than me. And they put theirs up on top when somebody searches for my product. Are they both manufactured by the same place? Or is Amazon going off Amazon and goes it? off and manufactures it from somewhere else. Sometimes they'll go buy it from his supplier. They have insights into a lot of that because of where it's shipped from and that kind of thing. I mean, Amazon is clearly a monopoly, okay, for online sales, I think. They certainly have market power. There are some competing sites. But most of the time, these are small businesses they think they're doing really good going on Amazon, and Amazon uses it as a subterfuge, this is what I'm told, to take away their business, and they go out of business. That situation needs to be corrected. I just subscribed to Matt Stoller's blog. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Go. It's an antitrust blog. And he had a uh, an article this week, anti-monopoly midterm election candidates begin to emerge. And he's giving a bunch of quotes where antitrust is becoming kind of a thing out in the popular world, where has it been? Everybody who pays an internet bill to you know one of the few providers you can take it from, compare that to what people pay in Europe. They pay basically a fourth as much and they get five times the speed. How do they do that, right? He said it's bipartisan. Democratic candidate Tom Nelson said, it's crucial to fight corporate power on antitrust. J.D. Vance in Ohio called Jeff Bezos and Google, members of the ruling class. There's just people starting to make noise about this. And I'm just wondering, how prevalent is this? It's hard to get to that level where you're going against an Amazon or a Google. Yeah, and you have to have the wherewithal. I mean, they're going to hire two law firms, big law firms, and they're going to have 10, 20 lawyers on it. And they're going to try to wear you down. Now, you have to have a particular strategy and tactic to handle that and to counter that. But, you know, your point about the Internet, it's just like your electricity, your water company, your county water. It's a monopoly, but the government regulates it, right? Why that hasn't happened with the Internet, I don't know. If your electric company could charge whatever they wanted, it would be through the roof and they would do it because that's their goal, right, to maximize their profits. But they're a regulated industry. And the big danger right now of the Amazon and Googles are you think Amazon is an online seller, an online retailer not. They make most of their money on cloud services, on Amazon web services. You think Google's a search engine? No, they're going to start making cars and self-driving cars. I mean, the whole reason Google gave away their Android operating system is so they could monitor everything that everybody using a Samsung phone is doing. They don't charge. I had a patent case against Samsung, and I was going to bring Google into it. And Google said, we don't make any money off of it. We just give it away for free, you know, and I know why they wanted to give it away for free because they want that information and they're using that information to expand into lots of areas. I mean, they're not limited as limited as people think. Would you be willing to put on your legislator hat and suggest how that could be done or what people are suggesting as far as how to restrain those competitive abuses? One of the things is you have to have recourse, right? There has to be some recourse for a seller on Amazon, some recourse. And I don't know that, that a regulation is going to fix that. But if the only recourse you have is filing an antitrust lawsuit in court, good luck, right? Maybe that's breaking them up. 
I don't know. Maybe that's separating the companies. You know, you look at AT&T way back when, and they were the sole provider of phone services. And they broke them up and they had competition. Look at cell phones right now. You have T-Mobile, you have Verizon, you have AT&T. You even have smaller, cheaper cell phone services. That's because there's competition. There's not one behemoth, right? And Amazon delivering things is putting a hurt on small brick and mortar stores, you know? How are you supposed to compete if you're the mom and pop store down the street and everybody can just look on their phone and get something from Amazon? I don't know is the answer to your question off the top of my head, how to fix it. I think you just have to have some kind of recourse other than filing lawsuits. How prevalent are antitrust activities in our country? How often do consumers not realize that's why they're paying these prices? Oh, it's happening all over and nobody realizes it. I don't think many people know about antitrust law. They think antitrust law is against some big company who's trying to fix prices, right? But we handle uh, Hatch-Waxman cases. I've had a couple of those. So a, a drug company, in order to get drugs to market quicker and to get generics to the market quicker, the Hatch-Waxman Act was enacted. And it basically said if a pharmaceutical company has a patent on their product, and a generic thinks they can get around the patent, they can file for their own license under the FDA to sell the, the drug. And that constitutes an act of patent infringement. And then you have a litigation before they ever go to market where the judge can determine if there's infringement or not, or if the patent's invalid or not. But for a long time, those cases would be settled where the pharmaceutical company would just come in and say, we'll tell you what, we'll just settle with you and you don't get into our market. And so then that's where the antitrust law started to develop around that. And there's some very strict regulations that have been enacted because the whole goal was to get generics on the market quicker, right? And at the same time, pharmaceutical companies want to be rewarded for their research. And I understand that. But if all they have to do is buy off the generic manufacturers, you talk about margins, profit margins, aspirin 10 cents. I mean, you can make a pill for three cents and they sell it for $200, right? A pill. It's crazy. I have mild asthma and I used to use an inhaler. I still do very seldom, but I need it once in a while. I was going overseas and I walked through a duty-free shop where they had a bunch of perfume and I started having a reaction and I realized I'm going overseas. I only got a little bit of inhaler left. It's almost out. So I was on a trip where I, I teach law school once a year in Turkey and I was going through Lebanon. Oh yeah. And coming back through Spain, it was like an amazing trip I loved. I decided to go buy inhalers in each of those countries. So this inhaler that I get here, if I had no insurance, it would be $120, $80 with insurance. I go to Lebanon first and I said, do you have a pharmacy? Yeah, it's over there. And I walk in, I show them what I had and they go, we have something that is almost exactly the same. That'll be $2. Oh, my. <laughs> I go to Turkey next. It was $2.50. In Spain, it was about 3 bucks. So the equivalent for 120 is, you have a reaction to this? Part of me thinks it's the insurance industry, right? I mean, if we all went to the doctor and had to pay ourselves, I don't know that we'd be charged as much, right? But because there's insurance there, I think that's part of it. There's drugs that are being sold overseas cheaper than they can be sold here. The push was, why is that? Why in Canada are drugs cheaper when they're made by the same company as being made here? 
Why is that? It's not that the government up there is paying for them. It's all overlapping. You know, patents, copyrights, trademarks are limited monopolies. Antitrust wants to prevent monopolies. And there's quite a bit of intersection between all those. We have a lot more to talk about, about intellectual property. We'll be back with another episode. And thank you for giving us your time for both these episodes. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Feith. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view, and Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.